Well, maybe it's like Casey says. Fella ain't got a soul of his own, just a little piece of a big soul. The one big soul that belongs to everybody. Then... Then what, Doc? Then it don't matter. I'll be all around in the dark. I'll be everywhere. Wherever you can look. Wherever there's a cop beating up a guy. I'll be there. I'll be in the way kids laugh when they're hungry and they know supper's ready. And when the people are eating the stuff they raise and living in the houses they build, I'll be there too. I don't understand it, though. Me neither, Mom. Just something I've been thinking about. You're listening to the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast. Thought-provoking interviews with interesting guests and commentary on everything. From sports to gardening, from good food with close friends, to great music and movies. Provided by your hosts, Justin Ackerman, the millennial, Cody Stoffer, the reluctant Gen Xer, and Craig Morton, the token baby boomer. These guys are allergic to big words, but not to big ideas. Profound things will be said, but they will be entirely by accident. On this episode of the All That's Holy Blue Collar podcast, Craig, Justin, and I talk about the presidential debates and the election in general. Craig fesses up about his meddling ways. Justin is grateful for work and shamelessly plugs his business. And we all talk about the trend of police stops getting out of hand. Our guest is C. Christopher Smith, the editor of the Inglewood Review of Books and author of Reading for the Common Good. Music featured in this episode includes Do the Whirlwind from the band Architecture in Helsinki, Fits in the Tantrums and their song Roll Up, So Alive by the Goo Goo Dolls, Just This by Bird Talker, and the band Sleigh Bells and their song Rule Number One. So did, did you did, did you did you guys watch the debate? Oh yeah, uh, yes, yeah, I did. What 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 did you think? Well, I thought uh, personally. Well, Justin, I kind of shared this with you on your Facebook, yeah. but I thought the, the longer and the more Trump talked, the worse it was for him because he started out kind of calm and collected, uh, but it was like I read somewhere. This is probably a good way to describe it. He prepared. For a twenty, he prepared for a twenty-minute debate, debate, even though it was a ninety-minute debate. <laughs> That's so a was, good way of putting it. So he was out. He stuck to whatever, probably script they had, kind of worked up, at least about economic stuff or trade or whatever. But then he just kind of became unhinged, and by the end, he's screaming about <laughs> Rosie O'Donnell. And yeah. I mean, what? Who turns on a presidential debate expecting to hear talk about Rosie O'Donnell? But only with... Uh, only with... Screaming at that. It's screaming yeah. about and it and not it's letting it screaming go. Screaming about it at that. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it's a thing to behold. It's just, it's just kind of gorgeous to watch. I, I just... <laughs> it's... I, I tend to have confidence that our democracy is much stronger than the, the candidates would lead us to believe. Sure. Uh, oh, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's like, oh, it's just if if he wins, it will be highly entertaining. I just I don't know. It'll, so you kind of want him to win now, huh? No, not really. I don't. I don't want. I don't want anybody okay, to win. Good. I, I want it to be. I don't want anybody to win. <laughs> well, that's that can't happen. Yeah, I know. Even when it's a yeah. tie, the Supreme Court steps in and justifies right. its actions. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's what we need. Oh no! You know what? It would get tied then because it's eight people right now, oh, four to four. <laughs> oh my goodness! That would be true. that would be cool. Well, then, then who breaks the tie for the? Who? How would that? That would be unprecedented. Would it? Would it be? That, somebody, um, would it be the Speaker of the House? Gosh, I don't know, man. That's interesting. Who breaks the? We'd tie? We'd have to look into that to see who wow. breaks the tie there. Oh, that is crazy. Like, there's all these levels, probably, and right now, because there's eight justices, that's like, yeah, oh, my word. Oh, that'd be, that would be exciting. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. I kind of right. hope, hope it happens now. So, Justin, how did, how did, you, like, how did you like the debate? Oh, well, um, my thoughts on it are kind of echoing some of what Cody said, like, um, 
I, for one, I didn't. I felt like it's kind of funny to use the uh, um, prepared for a twenty-minute debate, yeah. but it was actually ninety minutes. I think that's true. And um, what was funny though is that he really got more um, speaking time, as right. Cody kind of pointed out. I would guess it was roughly sixty forty, and um, and I kind of that was something a lot of the fallout from from it as well was that if you just let him keep talking, he'll expose just how ignorant he really is. And I think, I do think that did kind of happen. The thing that, um, overall with these debates, though, the thing that I think about is that sort of the point of it, and we could talk more about this, is, um, that, you know, you always want their, um, sort of their net profit of voters to increase. Cause like you want, both sides wanted to gain more voters as a result of that, but not just gain more, but the other side just wanted to, didn't want to lose as many voters. You know what I mean? Kind of right. a protective this, stance almost. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And in this election above so many others in which so many people dislike the candidates, it seems like the more they say could actually hurt them more than hurt them at this point. So I was almost kind of measuring it on, Who's gonna lose the least? Who's gonna lose the least as opposed to who's gonna gain the most from right. this? And um, but even even with that though, you can even take issue with that though, and that it seems like from what I've gathered, like from social media and such, it seems like Clinton probably benefited more from gaining some credibility from that debate, certainly more than Trump did. Mm-hmm. And um, I actually don't think it hurt her all that much the only the thing that i was kind of concerned about is that like everyone was talking about how um how trump won it or how uh hillary won it just in a landslide and how awful trump was if we're basing it on the criteria of who was more influential and in either gaining votes or who lost the least amount of votes i think there were a lot of conservatives who went into this debate disliking both candidates, not planning to vote for either of them. And I could see some of the things that Trump said, just his overall demeanor, really appealing to them. And that's something that I was kind of concerned about, is I think I think among conservative circles that don't like either candidate, or at least claim to not like either candidate, I have a feeling that they, that Trump won a lot of their respect from that, which that should be, I mean, that should be a very alarming truth if that's the case. But I do think that it, I do kind of see that happening, like with him constantly interrupting Lester Holt or Hillary Clinton. I can just see that camp just absolutely loving that he's, quote unquote, sticking it to the liberal media. You know what I mean? But So um, what do either the two of you make of the support that Trump gets from I mean, when you read when you read it, uh, the the support from quote unquote evangelicals, it's seventy six percent of those who quali- count themselves as evangelicals are behind Trump. How does that happen? Well, I, it is so, weird. It is. It, well, it, I would say, it, I would hope that it's weird. But actually, the truth of the matter is the reason why I have not, for a long time, called myself an evangelical is because of m- mostly the political side of things because yeah. it's been so co-opted by the well essentially the Republican Party that mm-hmm. a long time ago I gave up or I don't even know if co-opted by the Republican Party but it, but whatever for whatever reason they are in seem to be in bed together so a long time ago I it, it doesn't surprise me at all because that so for example in 2000 and what was it 7 or 8 they did that poll about torture and evangelicals right. overwhelmingly supported yeah torture and i'm like no nope, that, that, that i like that was the line in the sand for me i was like no nope, okay then i'm not an evangelical i suppose yeah i guess i, I don't qualify yeah <laughs> right i can't i well, can't I, it's too i'm too small a person to try to correct this course so i'm going to walk away from, <laughs> from it entirely so there's there's a you know what fun, or sorry go ahead craig no, uh, well i was i was one of the one of the things that came to my attention, and I haven't really read it yet. I've just kind of skimmed it. But uh, Christianity Today put out an article last month called "I Overlooked the Rural Poor." Then Trump yeah. came along, 
Mm. So I skimmed the article a little bit, but it reminded me of a book I read back in 2008 called Deer Hunting with Jesus. Yeah. And in this book, the, the, the Deer Hunting with Jesus, the, the author puts this idea forward. The, uh, the poor white folk of the South or the rural areas supported George Bush at, at the time of the, this book was being written. And it, was, it seemed like those two worlds were separate because the people who were impoverished were needing medical care, dental care, better education, jobs, all these things that the liberal progressives were trying to to create but the mm-hmm. but the but the conservative rural folk largely you know identified as conservative viewed the uh, you know political right as more closely aligned with evangelical christian beliefs mm-hmm. and so they would rather be close to jesus you know this is kind of the way the author would would say it kind of paraphrasing they'd rather be close to jesus than having their needs met and the needs of their community met. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and I think that that's playing out again. You know, you've got Trump who's promising, you know, rose, you know, just a rosy future. Um, and they, and not that, not that Jesus is with Trump, but Jesus is with the, with the political right. I mean, I think that's the mindset. Um, and that they're willing to overlook Trump's, character and personality because he's kind of like this uh was it king cyrus who was considered the uh the chosen one for ancient israel to let them go back home right yeah Yeah. he was called the messiah yeah yeah i mean so he's he's not one of us but he's going to get us what we need (laughs) and and uh oh boy and it it just it's it's still this issue of to me about issues of of uh rural generally white uh, uh, you know s- struggling people trying to find a way out and and I even though I would th- think progressive politics would sound attractive because of jobs mm-hmm. education etc still this leaning toward the right because that just happens to be where Jesus is but maybe I'm reading it all wrong I don't know well, yeah I mean that's well, they present themselves as that's where Jesus is anyway what, one of the interesting things, I was reading somebody's um, blog about political stewardship. You know, and you throw that word around in, in church circles about stewardship. It has this heavy sense of uh, this is something you should do. There's an there's a imperative behind, you know, we need to take care. We need, we, we've got this job to manage. Uh, we maybe even control. But, you know, we have this gift of a vote that we need to steward so we have to use it wisely yeah and all this kind of stuff and i'm kind of wondering if that's the wrong language to use yes because it 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 forces kind of like what what justin was saying you know we can easily say that the problems of one or the and and look at the other side say it's just as bad but i think this election with both candidates uh supported at such a low level um yeah do we have to make a choice between those two to steward, you know, to be good stewards of our political involvement or influence? Would it be, wouldn't it be just as appropriate for a Christian to say, in good conscience, I can't vote for any of these bozos, but right. I'm not going to discount or I'm not going to pull myself out of the political process. In right. fact, I'm so dissatisfied with this that I'm going to become more involved at the local level, the community, mm-hmm. uh, volunteer, you know, start lobbying on issues that I care about, but whatever, become more engaged. Yeah. You know, is, is voting the end-all, be-all of our political involvement? Right. Sure. Yeah. Well, I see people, yeah, I've, I have friends who are basically essentially posting that very thing. They're saying, I have this vote, I have to do something with it, and I'm like, I don't, you know, I, I hate getting in political conversations. So I don't even put anything, but I'm screaming, no, you don't have right. to vote at all. In fact, probably one of the most uh, um, faithful things that we can do as citizens of God's kingdom is not to, in a lot of <laughs> elections, is to be a voice that's not participating in the system, maybe speaking to the system. Right. right. You know? The... Uh... The fallback, and I, I posted this on a friend's website uh, or fa- Facebook, but my fallback is 
and I and I haven't used it as much this year as I normally do in the election years. My fallback is always Philippians three twenty, mm-hmm. and it's just our citizenship is in heaven, and that's where we're looking for a savior. Yeah, <laughs> that, exactly. You know, we're we're not really looking for a party to be a savior, but I think there's there's elements of idolatry we get into. Exactly, exactly. and uh, so we create these individuals to be the image we want them to be. So I can overlook yeah. Clinton's flaws, her trustworthiness. Whether right. she told the truth or lied or made bad choices, because she goes to church, she's a Methodist, you know, she's right, right, she's right, a sister right. in Christ. So I can look. What I'm doing is I'm molding her to shape the idol I think I need in the, this political process. Right, and, and I can do the same thing with Trump. You know, I can overlook a bunch of stuff in his behavior and rhetoric, and think, well, he's just opening ways for people of faith to be more, uh, you know, they, they they can become more engaged or be more prosperous or whatever it is. I'm, I have a harder time shaping him into an appropriate idol, but um, you know. But I think <laughs> but that's, it can be done. It, it can, can be, be done. done. Yeah, but I think that's that's what we end up doing is we turn these individuals or the parties they represent into these these idols. Do you really feel like it's that common anymore, though? Because like from pretty much most people, religious or otherwise, but just to focus on religious people for the moment, I feel like I hear a lot of them who have political views who line up with at least certain politicians, yeah. but they're so insistent on not being political that they don't even want to address the similarities. And they'll just, they'll claim to the death that they're nonpartisan, nonpolitical, anything like that. And I feel like it gets embarrassing sometimes when you can't even call a spade a spade in this discussion. Oh, yeah, sure. So people want to cling essentially to the, oh, no, I am the moderate in this. Yeah discussion in well, fact i'm not involved at all in politics but I'm not yeah exactly they'll say they have no political views is one i hear quite a bit you know and I, I think to me those whatever anybody says they don't oh just about anything i think that becomes either a they're incredibly uh thoughtful and have really gone through the issues and analyzed it and chosen to be kind of conscientiously opposed to participation. They know what's going yeah. on, but they're not choosing a side. Yeah. Or they are a blank slate with no idea because they've never really given it much thought. And if that's the case, then they become, to me, I think, more vulnerable to being swayed by whoever comes up with an argument. And, sure. yeah. and, and I think sometimes that's the group that, you know, Maybe goes into. I wonder if they go into the the voting booth and now they're just going to vote for whatever the last piece of information was that they heard that struck them. Hmm. You know, they're independent. A lot of them, I don't think, go to the voting booth. Well, yeah, yeah. That's what I honestly believe. things been going man well i've i have i have a confession Ooh, let me hear your confession child <laughs> thank you father <laughs> uh you know one of one of the things i remember writing years ago uh, was called muddling in the middle mm. you know how we, you can get excited about the beginning of something right and also when you get toward the end and you see the the you know the light at the end of the tunnel it's easy to give it an extra push yeah. what what the struggle is is when you're in the middle of things. Oh boy! Because there's not a lot of there's 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 it's, there's there's not a lot of excitement. You're you're just hanging in there. Mm-hmm. And I was talking with somebody oh a couple of weeks ago. I can't remember. Just saying, you know, I why why am I worrying about this PhD program? Why do I want to get a doctorate? It's really not going to do anything for me professionally. It's really not going to do you know make a big difference in my life. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm, I've, I've cut back on uh, work so I can get this done. So it's costing me money. You know, what's, what's the use of it? And there's a part of me that I, I do not want to quit. I'm not a, I, I don't want to be a quitter. Right. And after I've invested already all this time in it, I, it would be a shame just to kind of chuck it. But on the other hand, I find myself simply lacking the motivation to keep at it. And so it's easy to become distracted or think about other things because right here in the middle, it just doesn't seem that inspiring. Mm. And, and like a lot of things in life, I, I'll, you know, it's got its own sports metaphor. Uh, um, yeah. the, the, the most difficult to me, the most difficult race in track and field is probably the 400 meter. Mm. And I know a lot of long distance riders will disagree with me on this, but you know, if you're running, if you're running more than one lap, if you're running 800 or a 1600 or a 3200, mm-hmm. if you make a mistake anywhere along the way, you've got, you know, several, several more meters to, to make up for it, right. to kind of correct that step or that stride and to, to get back on track. In the 400 meter, you really do not have any opportunity to get it wrong. And so you start strong. Once you get on the back straight, you hold your, your pace coming around that back turn. Uh, you're, you know, you accelerate a little bit on the turn. So you get a little bit of whip coming down the straightaway. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're in the, you know, coming down to the finish line, then you put in your kick and you got everything left over. You just put it out there. And in that, there's no place to rest, to pause. And if you make a mistake with your stride, the race is over. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, I need to adopt that mentality for getting this PhD done. You're that, running a 400. Yeah. And I, and it, you know, had a good strong start. It was no problem there. But right now I feel like I'm in the back straight away. And, you know, even on the back straight, that's not where the crowds are. They're on the, they're on the home stretch side. You know, so you're, you, it feels uh, isolating, feels worthless, mm. um, that it really doesn't matter. You know, once you make that turn, you're coming down the home straightaway, you know, and people are yelling, then there's a little extra inspiration. And, and it's not that I'm looking for affirmation or congratulations or that cheer the crowd on the backstretch. That's just discipline, you know, of, of keeping at it and, and doing what I know is the right thing to do. And that's where I'm stuck. I just feel myself, you know, almost, almost, uh, sliding backwards that I'm not keeping the pace. And I can find all kinds of ways to justify not keeping at it. So that that middle section where I am right now is um, is bothering me. Uh, I, I feel like I'm not putting my all into it. Do you <clears throat> always feel this way in the middle, or are there spikes of ups and downs of? Oh, there. I guess there'd be spikes. Yeah, there there are times where something comes across of interest to me that fits in with, say, my dissertation right. topic, and I go, "Oh, wow, that's cool. I, yeah, I yeah. understand that. I I can. I'm, I'm going to hold on to that thought, that idea, and that you know adds a little little surge. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not always. It doesn't. It doesn't reestablish the right pace. Okay. Doesn't get the stride back in shape. Yeah. About uh, how long is your PhD program going to be? Well, since I'm in the dissertation phase, it's until I get it done. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I should be done by the end of the year, within within a year. Okay, so hopefully okay. So 10 months I could finish it off. Well, are you the type of person who uh, can find things that motivate you, like external things? Like, uh, okay, you know how some people, if they're trying to accomplish a task, they'll put up pictures, you know, of something that they hope to have done within this amount of time or or maybe it's a person that inspires them or something like that like quotes like they put up a quote or something you got anything are you like that you know not not terribly uh i think so much of my motivation is intrinsic rather than those extrinsic things okay uh and and though i've tried some of those Mm -hmm. they 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 might again you know give a little surge but they really don't have lasting power you need to get a picture of you in a phd robe and put it, <laughs> <laughs> and put it up that i guess that, that yeah it's it's that's part of it is the end but i think i also need to find a way to 
dig into where I am. Right. Yep. And I think that's where the intrinsic value comes. Yep. Find that love of what's going on right now. Yeah. Hmm. Um, let's see. Ten months to a, to a year. Right. Wow, Craig. You can do this, buddy. You can do it. You got to find that stride. You got to find that motivator, intrinsic. How are you going to do it? Let's see. I don't know. Well, a good place to start. <laughs> a good place to start is to recognize what you got going on, though, so you know, hey, this is something I've struggled with before. Right. Um. Maybe you should reread your article. Read it ten times a day. Oh yeah, I should go back and dig up that the, the one that I referred to, muddling through the middle. Mm-hmm. Maybe yeah. it will become your dissertation. dissertation. <laughs> I hope not. Then I'd have to change everything yeah. over again. <laughs> what is your dissertation topic? Uh, what holds organizations together and what separates them? Ooh. Uh, specifically, why is the Mennonite Church USA fragmenting? Uh, oh wow. With- and it would apply to any other denomination sure. that experiences uh, splits and separations. Oh, interesting. So it's a practical stuff. I mean, it's yeah. things, things you're living right now. Right. So I guess if you were to think about it in terms of how this is, because you, you said to your friend or whoever it was <clears throat> that, I think you said it was a friend you were telling this, like, why am I doing this? It's not going to, you know, change my life or whatever. But I suppose if you look at the dissertation as this is what you are doing, this is your life, right? You're part of what you do is to consult with organizations who are going through this. So it is a, <clears throat> just the, not necessarily the paper that you get at the end, but this process that you're going through is a benefit to you. It's, it's helping you and shaping how you approach and handle those, uh, your job as a consultant, basically. Right, right. And that, that's the reason I selected the topic mm-hmm. that I did. Mm-hmm. And I just think, yeah, I think that's, um, that's, that's probably where my problem is. And it's, it's needing to continually to remind myself. And I guess the, just the, 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 um, part of the confession is, is not doing that due diligence, I guess. Right. Yep. Uh, I wonder if there's something you can do to kind of, in the middle here, restore that either initial excitement. Well, yeah, that initial excitement. So make it kind of a fresh, make the project fresh somehow to you, like it, like it was when it was at the beginning, you know. So maybe there's a new layer of, I don't know, research you can do or polling or something that you can do with organizations that will be like a de facto hey this is almost like i'm starting it again you know and and just kind of feel that yeah it's and it's really yeah it's an emotional it's a feeling thing right oh yeah, yeah. and remind yourself that it is it's emotion darn these emotions no kidding because i don't really feel like i'm that always that emotional of a person right you know? but it shows up in some things doesn't it yeah that's one of the things about emotional intelligence if you're not an emotional person when you actually are you don't know <laughs> it when you actually are being there emotional exactly oh, it's a good thought yeah. All right. Well, Craig, I haven't given you any real solutions, but, you know, well, it, I, I'm for you. I've, if I can encourage you, I will. Then, then that, let's, let's do that. So I'm confessing my, my weakness in maintaining that pace that I need to maintain, yep. but I'm also going to ask you to be kind of an accountability partner. There you go, buddy. I'll check in on you. Thanks. All right. Uh, bless you, my child. Thank you. I feel blessed already. <laughs>
guest today is C. Christopher Smith, the author of Reading for the Common Good, How Books Help Our Churches and Neighborhoods Flourish, and co-author of Slow Church, and editor of the Inglewood Review of Books. So, Chris, let me ask you this question at the top. Where in sure. the world did this obsession with reading come from? <laughs> Well, probably for my parents, uh, it's genetic. I mean, I've, uh, both of my parents are teachers, um, and uh, they taught me to read at a pretty young age, and I've always loved books. My mom jokes, I actually write about this in the, the new book, but uh, my mom jokes that a lot of my toys from my early childhood were in pretty pristine condition because I'd prefer to read books than to to play with the toys, that, the few toys that I did have. <laughs> Now, you weren't uh, first going into the world of liter- literature. It was kind of a hobby. What, give us a, just a brief biography of how you got to be you know, the, in the position of an editor of a uh, review magazine and an author. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, uh, it's easier to tackle the question of the book review editor than, than mm-hmm. author uh, <laughs> because, I mean, I just kind of stumbled into writing as well. Uh, but... Um, but yeah, I mean, I certainly never set out to uh, to be either. Um, though uh, I'm less surprised uh, that I'm an author than than an edit- a book review editor, just because that's so so weird. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, how to tell this story concisely? <laughs> um, I mean, like I said, I've always loved books, and when I was in grad school, so I went to grad school. Uh, studying history and philosophy of science mm-hmm. at Indiana University here uh, in well down in Bloomington, which is about an hour from Indianapolis. Um, and uh, while I was in grad school, I uh, started selling some used books on the side mm. just to make a little extra money. And um, and then once I got done with grad school, uh, or I took a break from grad school actually. Um, uh, my wife and I did a pastoral internship with the church in Cincinnati. Hmm. And while I was doing that, um, got connected with some folks and started doing a little bit of publishing uh, sorts of things. Um, and uh, so I was kind of doing both a little bit of publishing, a little bit of used book selling as a hobby for a few years. Uh, and kind of that was in the time leading up to the time that we came to Englewood. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christian Church, uh, the church community that we're a part of now, mm-hmm. and uh, well, so when we came here in about 2003, um, they the the church already had it's kind of a stretch to call what they had a bookstore. It was more of a bookshelf, uh, sure. but they sold new books, <laughs> oh, cool. um, which was yet another different uh, thing um, from the, the things that I was already doing. And they said, hey, why don't we combine what we've already been doing with what you've been doing mm. and just kind of ramp it up over a period of time um, and uh, and uh, eventually maybe you'll be able to go full-time with it. And I was working in IT at the time and not particularly content with doing that. So I was like, sure, why not? Um, so, and eventually, uh, several years later, I was able to go full-time with kind of a mix of new book selling, used book selling, and mm-hmm. a little bit of publishing. Um, but that was kind of right before the recession hit. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, long story short, uh, we lost at least three-quarters of our income kind of with the, the first downturn of the recession. And we were kind of scrambling around to kind of figure out what are we going to do um, because I had only been working for at for full-time uh, for about a year uh, prior to that. Uh, so kind of scrambling around, and eventually we kind of had this idea that uh, we might, some of us in the church might pool our email addresses of friends who we thought might like to receive a book review a week in their mm-hmm. email. Um, and, um, and we maybe had about 100 people that we started with. Um, oh, wow that way and um and people loved it it was just good timing a lot of uh newspapers magazines were cutting their book review coverage mm-hmm. yep. and so publishers loved it a new outlet um and and readers loved it um and so within six months then we started started the website um 
and uh yeah and that so that's been um i mean still i don't do very much new book selling anymore mm-hmm. and very little we we still do um we have others here that do kind of carrying on some of the used book stuff mm-hmm. um and i still kind of help if there's questions or consult or whatever if you want to call it uh, with that um but um but yeah, the review has kind of grown to take over um, most of um, most of my time and energy. And then, kind of the other part is just kind of writing and speaking on uh, writing, speaking, and editing, kind of as a, on a freelance yeah. um, sort of basis, uh, including including book projects like reading for the common good and slow mm-hmm. church. Yeah, talk about uh, slow church there. Then, so how did the work that you were doing? in the kind of the book world and the review world, how did that connect to writing a book about slow church? First, well, I'll ask you what slow church is in a little bit for the listeners, but how did that launch into a, a writing a book about the slow church movement? Yeah, I mean, I think the the key there, and I'm glad that I uh, told, told the story of kind of how I came in to do that, um, because... The key was not necessarily so much um, the the book selling and book reviewing, um, but the key was, uh, or one of the things that really kind of made me interested in the church and one of the main points of connection uh, was actually this church uh, mm-hmm. that was uh, paying attention to uh, what its members. Uh, what kind of gifts and skills and passions mm-hmm. its members had, and and actually uh, starting businesses. Um, yeah. So we probably had uh, half a dozen at least uh, different businesses, some larger than others, oh, wow. um, that uh, employ uh, maybe forty, thirty to forty uh, people in our congregation mm-hmm. uh, work uh, either full or part time in. Uh, one of those businesses. Um, so, I mean, I think that, uh, so a big part of the Slow Church book um, is uh, imagining uh, new sorts of economies. Yeah. Um, uh, and, uh, and obviously a lot of that uh, came out of our experiences. I mean, a lot of all the books uh, came out of our experience, but, but particularly for me, uh, kind of, one of the main sorts of connections with kind of my story as I told it um, already is uh, this uh, uh, is the the economy piece of it mm-hmm. of um, of the church that of being part of the church that um, was uh, trying to imagine some different ways of of caring for one another and mm-hmm. and sharing resources together and uh, bearing witness to God's abundant provision. Very cool. So the title of the, the first book that you co-authored was uh, Slow Church, Cultivating Community in the Patient Way of uh, Jesus Christ. And uh, I wonder if you could uh, tell us what the slow church movement is. I know you make connections to like the slow food movement and that type of thing. But, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, but but what is it? Yeah, is so it? actually... Uh, I'll start by pushing back a little bit. Okay. Um, we do, uh, my co-author and I both uh, are not completely comfortable with the language of movement. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, Wendell Berry has this wonderful essay entitled uh, In Distrust of Movements mm. um, and how how he's observed that uh, movements uh, tend to uh, uh, Basically, eat themselves <laughs> and destroy themselves over time uh, because they, because movements are typically focused on a particular issue, uh, and in kind of isolating that issue from the rest of the economy and the rest of life, um, then uh, 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 basically they. Uh, kind of signing their own death warrant. <laughs> um, so, I mean, we've we prefer to talk about it as kind of the slow church uh, conversation. Okay. Um, and uh, because I mean, part of the nature of it is that uh, that we believe 
in the the interconnectedness of creation and the mm-hmm. interconnectedness of life, mm-hmm. and uh, that we're not just kind of uh, putting forth another sort of technique uh, for uh, how to uh, how to hack church, <laughs> for instance, right. um, but uh, but rather uh, really uh, trying to get to the root of what does it, what are, what is the nature of this thing called church uh, that we're called into, and how do we, what are some of the things that we need to be attentive to uh, as we discern what uh, faithfulness to the way of Jesus in our local churches uh, looks like in uh, in whatever context we might be in. Mm-hmm. Um, and we thought, again, so that, that's kind of what, where we stumbled into the language um, and the, the metaphors of uh, slow food. And we saw that, that, that those were really helpful. Um, so the slow food uh, movement, uh, and they, do, they are... Uh, not as hesitant as we are to talk about themselves as a movement, which is fine. Um, but uh, but uh, for those listeners that may not be familiar, the slow food movement that started in Italy uh, in the 1980s, so about thir- mid-1980s, 30 years ago, um, and uh, I mean, focused, kind of started among some activists who were protesting kind of a McDonald's mm-hmm. that was proposed on the historic Spanish Steps of oh, Rome. <laughs> and um, basically, kind of, uh, these activists eventually got to the point where we were like, we don't just want to be against something, we want to mm-hmm. uh, kind of be for something, uh, and kind of proposed a way of, of, of thinking about food uh, that really preferences uh, uh, local food, organic mm-hmm. food, uh, fair trade uh, food, um, and um, and particularly, even though the slow food movement, even though it focuses on food, there's kind of an undercurrent uh, of of community mm-hmm. uh, uh, to it, uh, and and to the other kind of slow movements that have kind of come in its wake. Uh, that so for slow food, the kind of community that happens as you sit around the table and have really good food that's uh, worth lingering over and worth having conversations over, mm-hmm. and the sorts of community that happens when you know the people who grow the lettuce that you might put in a salad or the eggs you might have for breakfast or whatever. Um, so we were particularly fascinated by kind of the, the sort of undercurrent of community and uh, fit very well with the sorts of convictions that we have about what God is doing in the world, which mm-hmm. is uh, fundamentally uh, uh, about uh, the people of God, uh, that the ways that God is uh, bear, bearing witness to God's reconciling work is uh, through a people who uh, who demonstrate, uh, obviously imperfectly and immaturely, but uh, demonstrate nonetheless uh, what God intends uh, for for all of creation. Um, and again, we kind of look, look at the scriptural story, and you'll see. Uh, kind of obviously the what we call the Old Testament mm-hmm. um, is primarily the sto- the primary actors in that story are God and the Israelite people, mm-hmm. um, and kind of in the New Testament, um, uh, I mean to use the language of Paul in Romans eleven, uh, the it, or the Gentiles were grafted onto the tree of Israel mm-hmm. uh, after Pentecost, um, and again fundamentally. Uh, the, the scriptural story is about um, the relationship uh, between God and the people of God. And our local churches today, despite the sort of history of fragmentation that we have in the Protestant tradition, um, mm. uh, that our local churches today are part of uh, the, the story um, of, of God working through the people of God um, and uh, our local churches we talk about in the book are manifestations of Christ's body or manifestations of the people of God right. uh, in a particular place. Um, so, um, so yeah, anyway, that's uh, what... So, so a church is... Uh, okay. What does it mean to, uh, to be uh, 
to be a community uh, together well? How do mm-hmm. we focus on uh, the quality of our lives together and the quality of our witness uh, to who uh, Jesus was, um, rather than the source of quantities uh, that are very easy for, very tempting for churches to kind of uh, uh, determine their identity uh, and their mission uh, by uh, the the sorts of quantities such as numbers of memberships, numbers of baptisms, numbers right. of money in the offering plate. And those are all not necessarily bad things. Sure. And they can be helpful metrics, but but they're not the main thing. Right. Right. Um, we need to be about... Uh, something more specifically. We need to be about uh, following in the way of Jesus. Yeah. Uh, so so that, that's kind of what uh, the, the content of, of Slow Church is, um, and that's the direction that we're really uh, encouraging people, uh, people to move. Sure. So with that in mind then, Chris, let me uh, ask this. With a Slow Church, with the idea of community organic growing uh, naturally from the community around so how does reading tie into this because i have to confess that uh, for me when i think reading uh, n- mostly i picture me individually reading alone a book that i like and not necessarily sure. community so how does reading <laughs> fit into this sure yeah and i mean that's exactly the question that um i wanted to uh wrestle with um in the reading for the common good book, mm-hmm. uh, because um, uh, I mean, I was in some ways reacting uh, to uh, the very sort of privatization of mm-hmm. reading, yeah. um, uh, the ways in which, um, particularly, I mean, most of the reading that we do uh, is kind of uh, usually happens in one of two modes. Um, which aren't necessarily bad things. Mm-hmm. I would offer that caveat first, but if they become the only ways that we read, uh, can be problematic. And the first of those is uh, is just simply reading for entertainment. Right. Um, and again, not necessarily a bad thing, but if it's the only way that we're reading, um, and and reading for uh, entertainment is often kind of uh, can become a sort of escape. Uh, uh, a disengagement uh, from uh, all the sorts of realities around us. Right. Um, and then the other sort of mode is um, um, self, self-improvement, self I guess, mm-hmm. is probably a, a good way to, uh, I mean, any sort of kind of learning uh, for my own sort of personal enhancement or whatever, I would kind of cut, fall into this category, any sort of... Uh, reading that we would do uh, to um, learn to do a job better, et cetera, et cetera. And again, not necessarily a bad thing, mm-hmm. uh, but but to what end are we doing it? If we're just doing it to be, to be if I'm just doing it to be a better person, then um, it can be problematic. I mean, again, it's, it's all about me. Um, and so, so what does it look like to, uh, to imagine a different way of, of reading uh, that is uh, first and foremost uh, social, um, and, and uh, kind of what what does it mean to kind of read? Because uh, this book very intentionally was a follow up to Slow Church. Um, so what does it mean to what is the role of reading uh, within kind of uh, the Slow Church conversation, as it were? Um, and so, I mean, first of all, I mean. To go back to your initial question, uh, that I mean, I do think I'm, I mean, I'm not opposed. The sort of reading that I'm recommending is not always doesn't always doesn't mean that our only form of reading should be literally reading with others. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that it's helpful for me anyway uh, to uh, make the distinction between uh, reading that is personal, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of just. I mean, the, the way that we uh, do reading, um, that just reading on our own, uh, but uh, but even if we're reading on our own, there is the possibility of uh, trying to read things uh, that contribute uh, to conversations that we're participating in in our churches and our neighborhoods, reading with an eye toward 
uh, deeper engagement uh, in the communities to which we belong, whether that's family, church, neighborhood, right. or something bigger than that. Um, so, I mean, that would be what I would call personal reading. Uh, and certainly, what I described as reading for the common good uh, certainly would allow uh, for personal reading, um, as well as kind of book clubs and mm -hmm. church groups that read books together and sure. uh, kind of more obviously social uh, sorts of ways of reading. Kind of what I have a little bit more of a problem with uh, is what I would call private reading. Mm. Uh, reading that, I mean, which is kind of the sort of reading that I described earlier, reading that is solely or primarily about about me <laughs> uh, as a part, as a private uh, individual kind of isolated off Right. Um, from uh, from uh, the communities to which I belong. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that's sort of healthy, and again, that's kind of what I was reacting against. Sure. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think the kind of the starting point for me uh, in this book uh, was, uh, I mean, just the, the tradition that we have of reading together in our churches, in the Christian tradition, particularly of reading scripture, um, uh, which is obviously a very social uh, sort of practice. Um, and so, I, I mean, I kind of take that as a starting point and um, say, well, what do we need uh, to, to read Scripture well? Um, I mean, certainly we, we read the text, uh, but, but we also need other sorts of reading that helps mm -hmm. us um, understand the text, understand the meaning of the text, uh, for the people uh, to which they are originally written, mm. uh, so obviously theology, biblical studies, mm -hmm. history, archaeology, all those sorts of tools and types of reading uh, may be helpful for us to have a deeper sense of the, the meaning of the text. Uh, but then also we're also interpreting the text, um, uh, are seeking to embody the text, embody mm. uh Jesus, who is at the heart of, of the scriptural story, um, uh, within our own particular context. Mm. And again, this is a point that comes, kind of comes back to a lot of the mentality of slow church. Right. Um, but, but in order to embody Jesus well uh, in our particular places, we have to know the places where we are yeah. um, and, uh, and have some imagination for uh, kind of how to navigate kind of between uh, the scriptural story and the story of our places. Mm. Um, and, I mean, there's all kinds, pretty much any sort, or not any sort, uh, but there's a, a wide swath of, of reading that really helps us do that work. Uh, I mean, so I'm in an urban neighborhood, uh, so we have people in our congregation that uh, read a lot of kind of urban theory, urban mm -hmm. history, urban architecture, uh, really kind of I'm trying to understand uh, where we are, um, and then all sorts of kind of current events and history uh, kind of helps us wrestle with the question of when we are. Um, and, uh, and I mean, um, literature and poetry can be really helpful mm -hmm. uh, to this work as well, um, to, to helping us uh, see uh, facets of, of our places and of being faithful uh, in our places in ways that we might not actually uh, be as prepared to see in nonfiction uh, sorts of works. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, I advocate for reading broadly, yes. uh, but I also kind of add the caveat that I don't necessarily think that every person should be reading broadly, <laughs> uh, but across any particular church community, right. uh, hopefully uh, there will be. And again, that's kind of allowing for this, uh, what I just said earlier, is personal sorts of reading. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the, the challenges of, of any uh, church community is how do we, how do we have sorts of spaces uh, where uh, we can talk about the things that we're reading and we right. can uh, kind of weave uh, the things that we're reading and learning into uh, uh, the, the fabric, as it were, of our life together. Hmm. Um, how do we... Uh, how do we uh, so not everybody is going to read every book that I do, but there might be certain ideas uh, in a book that I read or a book that 
uh, a brother or sister in my congregation might read um, that are really helpful for some sort of situation that we're facing hmm. at any particular time. Uh, and how do we um, how do we kind of uh, uh, draw upon the broad reading of the reading practices of the congregation uh, to uh, to help uh, make discernment about what it looks like to be faithful together. Feeling like a hero but I can't fly No, you never crash if you don't try Took it to the edge, now I know why Never gonna live if you're too scared to die Gonna disconnect from the hard wire Time to raise the flag for the ceasefire Okay, so basically, I'm a. Uh, I just want to extend a, a huge amount of gratitude, um, just for not only my new job and business opportunity that I have ahead of me. I, I'm really excited about the future. I'm really excited about the things to come and all the doors that this is going to open. And that's um. I just can't even put into words how excited I am and uh, fortunate I feel about that. And um, but. It was a great idea that I don't know which of you had it or both of you did, but also to remember to be grateful for the opportunity I have had over the past three and a half years um, doing what I do and uh, all the doors that's opened for me as well. And just the level of security that that's given me. Um, I'm uh, I'm really grateful for that. And it was something that for a long time in my life, I didn't know I would have that level of security. And so the fact that I have been have it has been um has just really been a godsend for me and um so yeah that's just something to remember to always be grateful for the jobs you've had and be especially thankful for when they come you know after a while for understandable reasons you'll want to move on to bigger and better things but don't forget that once upon a time you are extremely relieved to be in the position that you're in right now and uh that's something that's important for me to remember Share with us your, what is the transition? You're going from what to what? Okay, I'm going from uh, locksmith work, uh, doing uh, marketing, roadside assistance, uh, business development for advanced lock and key. So now I'm going to be doing business development and um, managing and running and soon be the owner of a carpet cleaning business. And so um, I'm going to have that and we've, partnered up to uh, with a commercial and residential cleaning company here in the Treasure Valley. Mm-hmm. So we're also going to be offering that service as well, residential and commercial cleaning and move-out cleans for properties. Yeah. And uh, and on top of that, I'm looking to – I also have some companies that I'm doing freelance work for as far as Internet marketing goes. And because I'm a freelancer, I can offer a wide variety of products to – other businesses in the area and so i'm going to have that and all that with locksmithing i was on call the time so Mm -hmm. it was very hard to balance my schedule because i could get called out clear across town and um you know and at any moment and i'm not going to have to deal with that anymore managing my schedule is going to be a whole lot easier and so i'm feel really fortunate about that awesome what's the name of the carpet cleaning business yeah, Carbonated Solutions Carpet Cleaning. Carbonated Give them a free advertisement there. Huh? Exactly. So if you're in the yeah. Treasure Valley and you need your carpets cleaned, Justin's your man with Carbonated Solutions. You know, it sounds like we might right. have a new sponsor. <laughs> That's right. Yep. <laughs> exactly, Craig. And, uh, and yes, it is a mouthful. I apologize for that. I don't, we might have a name change in the future. We might not. I'm fine with the name as it is, but I can understand if it's uh, it's going to be hard to remember the first few times you hear it. <laughs> no, good. That's awesome, man. Thank you, well, Justin. You, you want to hear something funny real yes. quick? Yes. So as yesterday was exactly three and a half years that I'd been with Advanced Locking Key. Oh, wow. So I started March 30th, 2013. So it had been exactly three and a half years as of yesterday. Oh, wow. And yesterday... 
I got was only the second time ever in this job that I got a flat tire on the way to a job. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. So the roadside assistance car needed roadside assistance. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. And even even worse than that, it was both times that it happened mm-hmm. was during rush hour traffic ah! in which I needed to get – oh, it's worse than that, in which I needed to get clear across town – going with rush hour traffic. Oh, man. And so so I don't know how well you know the Treasure Valley, oh, Cody. Yeah. I know yeah. you know it well, Greg. But because, um, like, I live in southeast Boise, and um, both times it happened, I wasn't at home, but I was in, like, central Boise. And one of them, as you know, during in the Treasure Valley, rush hour traffic is backed up when you're heading east in the morning and mm-hmm. west in the evening. Mm-hmm. And so both times it was in the evening – the first time I was, I had to head to Eagle, and so traffic was bit, really bad getting out to Eagle, going west. And then the second time yesterday, I had to go out to Caldwell, <laughs> and then I was on the freeway almost to the ten mile exit. Again, traffic's bumper to bumper heading out there, and I get a flat tire. Oh, so, uh, man. but yeah, that's pretty funny. But uh, yeah, no more dealing with that. So <laughs> <laughs> that, that just adds another level of gratitude yep. that you won't do that again. Yep. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yes. Does it ever? (laughs) Absolutely. That's a good start. fellas for the two-minute warning here's what i propose i want us each to come up with a solution a way to solve the problem of the number of incidences where police uh that we've had recently you know it seems to be on the increase of police and their interactions with people that go awry whether it end up with the death of somebody or a beating or anything like that so my question is, how do we curtail or lessen the numbers of those incidences? I want to hear your solutions. And that is, in fact, all of my time to propose the question. What? <laughs> you didn't even have to state a position? That's right. <laughs> all right. Well, okay, so. Craig first, so, ready. Your time is set. Ready? Go. So one of the things that I was thinking about of improving the uh, the, the the situation in which there's brutality, excessive force, the escalation of of uh, of force is I kind of I wonder what happens with the militarization of local police. It doesn't happen everywhere, but a lot of uh, police um, forces, at least people I hear, create this us versus them kind of mentality. And there have been things about community policing, getting people engaged in the neighborhoods, volunteered civic kinds of pro- uh, things that, that police officers can do. I think all that's that's good, but I, I'm concerned about how do we demilitarize the police and rather than have them be uh, presence of force on the streets, they actually go back to the protect and serve. They're actually peace keepers, peace maintainers. So that's kind of what I was thinking of. Oh, nice. Really good, Craig. Okay, Justin, your time starts now. All right. Well, first off, I have like five or six answers I could give on uh, (laughs) theories that I have. Seriously, but one of them is what Craig said. I agree a thousand percent with everything he said. That was one direction I could have gone. Another one simply is we have to agree that there's a problem here. What's so frustrating about this is that one side of the argument claims that this isn't even a real problem, that it's just fabricated uh, PC media nonsense that people are making up for sympathy points. And so we have to diffuse that. Also, I'd say we have to we're attracting the wrong types of people to be police officers right now. I think I think it's too easy for 
gets too attractive to people who are too trigger happy. And I think we can do a lot to 10 seconds prevent trying to attract that type of mindset into our police forces. Um, I have a couple other things I could give, but I know I'll go well over the 45 seconds. If I do. There you <laughs> oh, go. There <laughs> Excellent. Love it. Yeah. I think admitting, you know, Craig, yeah. Asking the, the question and just admitting there's even a, problem are worthy places to start good input yeah. fellas yeah good question there to ask so we, we settled that one, one. <laughs> that, <Yeah>. that <laughs> problem check mark that world problem off the list yeah. next <laughs> next time world hunger